Welcome to episode 1880 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I'm joined as always by Ben Lindberger of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? I'm doing all right. I'm excited because we're closing out our 10th anniversary week with an extra episode. And as a result, we are fittingly ending the week on an episode number that's a multiple of five for yeah. old time's sake. <laughs> yeah, look at that. How convenient. Uh, well, I'm happy with how it's gone. It seems like people have enjoyed these episodes and the plan, which has been ever shifting right up until this moment yeah. for anniversary week, was to do one retrospective episode with trivia and clips and tributes, which we did, and then one draft episode with old hosts and friends, which we did. And then the idea was to do one interview episode yes. where we would talk to to some of the baseball players or people we've talked about most often over the course of the show. Now, we struck out with a couple of those people, at least for now, though those doors aren't closed forever. We can revisit that idea. And another of those people agreed to come on but couldn't make it work for this week. So stay tuned. We hope that conversation will be coming sometime soon. So in that sense, the 10th anniversary celebration spirit will continue. However, we were able to land one of our most wanted guests in time for this week. Rich Hill is yeah. here. Yeah. Rich Hill himself, podcast legend, Red Sox starter, Dick Mountain in the house, the <laughs> second oldest active major leaguer, the oldest pitcher, the oldest American leaguer. Not to pick on him. Sorry, Rich. Yeah, jeez. <laughs> we had a great conversation with him the day before his most recent start in which, I guess appropriately, given how old I was just calling him, he hurt his knee. Yeah. <laughs> but he didn't hurt it too badly, and he's about to be back. So yeah. we didn't discuss the knee, but we talked about how the game has changed since he made his debut and how he's changed and kept up with the times and how he's seemingly conquered his blister problem and much more. But it was just a joy. We've talked about Rich Hill so many times over the years that it was great to have him on and talk to him and kind of convey to him what he has meant to the podcast over the years. And we just hope that he keeps pitching for as long as possible. But we're really glad to have him on today. Yeah. The once and future Dick Mountain. Yes, indeed. So to compensate for having only one great guest, one mere podcast legend on this episode, I came up with one way that we could... <laughs> 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 introduce Rich or uh, do something anniversary appropriate here to lead into this <laughs> interview. So I have a big stat blast backlog. Yeah. I didn't realize quite how big it was. Yeah. <laughs> because frequent stat blast consultant Ryan Nelson has been busily stat blasting and we've been busily doing anniversary stuff and talking about the All-Star Week and other things. And so I've just had more and more stat blasts build up here. Ryan actually went on vacation for a couple of weeks and he came back 
energized like in stat blasting withdrawal and so he's just been stat blasting nonstop ever since he got back and it turns out that I have enough stat blast completed here to do a stat blast for every year of the podcast. <laughs> it's a 10th anniversary episode. We're, we're doing 10 stat blasts here. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the reason we're laughing is because you were like, you you said a lot of that to me in, in chat before we started recording. And I was just, you were like, if you'll indulge me, I'll do 10. And I was like, sure, here we go. <laughs> Hopefully everyone will indulge me in us here. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, this is like a stat blast barrage. This is a stat blast fusillade. But really, <laughs> stat blasts and whatever we were calling them before stat blasts have been a very big part of yes. this podcast history. And we get to bring you some fun facts and some stats about baseball that you probably won't get anywhere else. And yeah. I think all of these were inspired by listener questions. So it's appropriate in that sense, too. And just got to thank Ryan for yeah. just churning away in the, the stat blast minds here over the past few weeks. And again, I encourage everyone to follow him on Twitter at RSNelson23. And as always, our stat blast segment, which this might be more than we could call a segment, but it is sponsored by Baseball References StatHead Tool. And as always, we encourage everyone to go to StatHead.com and use the coupon code WILD20 to yes. get a $20 discount on an $80 one-year subscription. They don't just do baseball. They do other sports and leagues too, but we will just be sticking to baseball here. So are you ready? Are you prepared for double-digit stat blasting? You know, I don't know that I am, but I'm going to do my very best. <laughs> okay. All right. Just gonna we're gonna empty out the stat blast archives yeah. here. Some of these will be quick. So this one, I'll just uh, go back to June 8th. This one was sent in by listener Sean. And he wrote, yesterday's Guardians-Rangers doubleheader was split six to three and three to six, respectively. How many times has a doubleheader been split with mirrored scores Ooh. like that? Sometimes I'll hear people say that a split doubleheader almost feels like a waste. It's like you wake up and you have the same record relative to 500 that you did that morning, except you had to play two games. I guess it's silly to look at it like that because uh, you got two games off the schedule and you're two yeah. games closer to completion. But maybe it feels unfulfilling if you played six or seven hours of baseball and at the end of it you won one and you lost one and maybe even more so when the score was the same in each of those and you were on the winning end once and the losing end once so ryan's answer and as usual he has used his retro sheet database to determine much of this but it happens in approximately one percent of double headers on record so 186 times in total 
there have been split doubleheaders with mirrored scores. The five most recent before this one, well, the most recent before this one was July 28th, 2021, when the Blue Jays and Red Sox had a 4-1-1-4 split doubleheader. It happened last June, too, with the Phillies and the Mets and 2-1. And then it happened August 15th, 2020, the Royals at the Twins, 4-2-2-4. April 20th, 2018, Royals and Tigers, 3-2. And July 16th, 2017, Yankees and Red Sox, 3-zip, zip-3. But before those, it hadn't happened since May of 2008, Toronto and Cleveland, Three nothing, nothing three. And before that, you had to go back to April 13th, 2005, the Padres and the Cubs, and they had a pretty extreme one of eight to three. And those seven are all the examples this century. But the most extreme mirrored score, would you care to guess the most extreme oh. mirrored score that has oh. actually happened? <laughs> oh, boy. Let's see. See, it, like, it makes me think, like, what do I... What do I understand the frequency of scoring to be? Yeah. What is the distribution of scores yeah. as That's I understand it? has been a stat it? before, I think, <laughs> but yeah. what hasn't been a stat blast at this point? I'm going to say 15 to 1. Not too far off. Oh. 13 to 4. Okay. I feel like I, I, you know what? That was a respectable yes, guess. Yes, it was. I did not ballpark, embarrass so my family with that guess. <laughs> yep. St. Louis Browns at Philadelphia A's, June 25th, 1936. There was a 13 to 4 with each of those teams winning one of them. And I will just say the data for most or all of these stat blasts will be linked as usual on the show page, on the podcast page, or in your podcast summary in your podcast player. Okay, that was stat blast number one. Stat blast number two comes from Michael. Now, this was sent June 14th. And his email started, I've just noticed something that screams Orioles baseball. Oh, no. Yeah, now on June 14th. That, yeah, I guess that was, <laughs> you know, that meant something different yeah, than right. it has historically. Exactly. Orioles yeah. baseball, it's a happier feeling now than it was on June 14th, probably. But Michael wrote, the Orioles starting lineup on that night featured a cleanup hitter with zero RBI on the season. It was Adley Rutschman, who Mm. had 78 plate appearances. And Michael wrote, he's had a few extra base hits and has scored some runs, but is one for 27 with zero runs batted in with runners on base. It's the first time this season, no career, (laughs) which is the same in his case, where he's batted Mm -hmm. fourth. So Michael said, I have to wonder if this is the latest in a season a player like this, say 50 plus plate appearances or more, has ever been written into a batting lineup in the cleanup spot. Oh. Now, Rutschman did not get an RBI that day. He got his first two the next day, June 15th, when he was once again batting cleanup. But Ryan looked into this, and this is not a record. So Ryan did it by plate appearances into the season rather than games, since that Mm. seems more interesting. If we went by games or dates, he says we might get a September call-up who just happened to get 50 or whatever arbitrary minimum plate appearances before getting an RBI. So... He actually went above and beyond, as he often does, and he gave me the most plate appearances entering a game without an RBI on the season for every slot in the order. So the most is for the leadoff spot, which Hmm. I guess makes some sense because uh, leadoff batters tend to get fewer RBI because they don't have good hitters hitting behind them or ahead of them. So Whitey Witt 
June 17, 1917, he was batting leadoff and he entered that game with 151 total plate appearances. He actually got an RBI that day, but Hmm. that's the most for any lineup spot entering the game without an RBI. The next most is the number nine hitter, which, again, I guess makes some sense. And this was recent. Last July 24th, Magnuris Sierra Mm -hmm. entered batting ninth with 139 plate appearances on the season. No RBI. Then... It's the eighth spot. Again, makes some sense. And this was September 23rd, 2016. And this was Caleb Joseph. And I remember that being a thing that year, Caleb Joseph and his like RBI-less streak. But he had gone 138 plate appearances without one. Then you have to go to the number six slot. And this was Magnuri Sierra again. (laughs) Last July 22nd, he was in the sixth spot that day. And he had 134 plate appearances. Then... We go to the cleanup spot. So this was the original question, and the answer is, yet again, Magnuris Sierra, (laughs) who last July 19th, he started a game in the cleanup spot, and he had 129 plate appearances entering that day without an RBI. And as we know now, he still had some RBI-less plate appearances to go, but that was the cleanup spot. So that is the answer. It was not Adley Rutschman. It was Magnuris Sierra, most played appearances, entering a season at the cleanup spot with zero RBI. Wow. Then the seventh spot, it was Herb Adams, June 11th, 1950. He was batting seventh and he had 125 played appearances without an RBI. Then the fifth spot, Caleb Joseph again. That was September 2nd, 2016. He was batting fifth and he had 121 played appearances entering that day with zero RBI. 6 1959 Manny Moda. He was batting second that day, and he had 119 plate appearances without an RBI, so that's the most for a number two hitter. And finally, the most for a number three hitter, yet again, it's that man, Magnuris Sierra. <laughs> Last July 7th, he had 115 plate appearances entering that day, so that is the most for a number three hitter without any RBI. So this is uh, not, as far as I can recall, something that we talked about last year with Magnuri Sierra, (laughs) but (laughs) he had some RBI issues last year with the Marlins. He ended up with five in 225 plate appearances, so he got some eventually, but, you know, yeah, rough. Rough. All right, so that was step last number two. Step plus number three comes from Jimmy, Patreon supporter, July 6th. Now, this is interesting. He starts, I'm watching my local newly exciting Orioles in the background while watching. So see, there's the difference between (laughs) mid-June and early July. Suddenly, it was not, oh, woe is us, Orioles baseball. It was, look at us and our newly exciting Orioles. Yeah. Real narrative arc there. Exactly. He writes, Yesterday's Orioles broadcast led off with the fact that the Orioles have four non-hit walk-off wins, two by error, one by walk, and one by hit by pitch on Monday. According to the broadcast, they lead the league. The Padres and Diamondbacks each had two, and 11 others had one. I have to wonder now, how rare is this, and are they on pace for a record in a season? To state it briefly, what's the record for non-hit walk-off wins in a season by a team? Should I now be rooting for non-hit walk-offs? So Ryan has determined that the record is six non-hit walk-off wins in one season, which has happened five times since 1916. The 1935 Tigers did it. 
twice on walks, three times on sack flies, which wasn't technically a stat at the time, and once on a ground out. And then the 1977 Dodgers did it on three sack flies, one walk, one pass ball, and one ground out. The 1990 Orioles did it on three sack flies, two walks, one error, a throwing error with the bases loaded. And the 1991 Cardinals did it on two walks, one sack fly, and three errors. Lastly, the 2000 Brewers did it on two sack flies, four errors. And he also notes that the most without a sack fly is five non-hit walk-offs, which has happened once by the 1966 White Sox. They had a walk walk-off, a hit-by-pitch walk-off, a passed ball walk-off, a bases-loaded E5 walk-off, and an E1 walk-off on a bunt, allowing the runner to score from first. That's a wild one. So yeah, that's the record. So the Orioles, I don't know if they have gotten any since then, but they were and probably still are on pace, I suppose, to break the record. So yeah, I guess if you're an Orioles fan, you should probably be rooting for any kind of walk-off win, but especially a non-hit walk-off win because, yes, they are on a somewhat historic pace when it comes to that. Yeah, geez. And then you're like, which of the ones, if you're an Oriole, I mean, the, like the non-hit ones, like you're like, don't let it be a hit-by-pitch walk-off win. Like mm-hmm. that'd be the worst kind, right? Because yes. then you have to be hit by a pitch. How would you order them, Ben? In terms of like most desirability or most desirability hmm. from the player's perspective though i guess it's really just like hit by pitch and then everything else right because other otherwise you're like come on hour yeah I, I guess i would want to walk just so like i get the walk in my stack right. column. I, I get an rbi <laughs> yeah. i mean the yeah, same yeah. with it hit by pitch except you don't have to get hit, get by, hit ball. by the pitch yeah you <laughs> so get that's spared nice. that yeah and then if you have like a pass ball or a wild pitch like you don't get any credit as the batter right so and maybe like if it's a if it's an error if it's like a ground out i could see how that might be exciting for fans because it looks like oh no like it's the last out it's just a routine grounder or something and then nope it's surprise we actually win because he threw the ball away so i could see how that might be maybe the most exciting maybe like the sack fly too just because sometimes that can be a close play that can be an exciting play right like a walk not super exciting a hit by pitch you don't get any time to anticipate it it just happens and if it's a sack fly depending on how deep it's hit and who's on third like you get some drama right like there's some suspense you know okay he's he's got to be going and there could be a play at the plate and sometimes it's a photo finish so that might be the most exciting way to make it happen i suppose yeah fair enough i think i i think i agree All right. Number four. This is from Max, who says, I was at the A's-Astros game on July 9th. Sheldon Noisy came to bat with the bases loaded and one out. A passed ball scored Alvis Andrus. Stephen Piscotty and Seth Brown advanced to third and second. The next pitch was wild, scoring Piscotty. Brown took too wide a turn at third and was picked off by Martin Maldonado, emptying the bases. 
My girlfriend Beth immediately pointed out that Noisy had come to the plate with the bases loaded and had the bases empty before his plate appearance had ended. Hmm. <laughs> it's, it's pretty wild, right? Yeah. So you had a passed ball and then you had a wild pitch and then you had a pickoff and suddenly he's still at the plate, but the bases are empty now. So he says, what else could even prompt this? Three box in a plate appearance, a pickoff gone horribly wrong. Has this ever happened? So Ryan says, in retrosheet language, Max is asking if there has ever been a bases-loaded game state that has become a bases-empty game state without a batter event. Mm. Max's example required two separate events to clear the bases, pass ball and wild pitch. Ryan says there have been 14 times since 1916 that the bases have been cleared in a single event. So it could be a passed ball and an error, or it could be a steal of home, and then there's a pickle. It could be a pickoff. I'll put a link online, but there's a, a long list of things that could happen here. Ryan says there have been nine times since 1916 that the bases have been cleared on two events not involving the batter. So, for example, Detroit at Philly, July 14th, 1936, there was a wild pitch, and then the runner from third scored, and then the runner from second goes first to third, and then there's a pickoff and an error, and the run scores from third. So a couple of things can happen, and suddenly the bases can be empty. But perhaps most interesting, there have been two times that the bases have been cleared on three events without involving the batter. So September 10th, 1954, the Reds at the Giants. There was a passed ball. The run scores from third. The runner on second goes to third. The runner on first goes to second. Then there's another passed ball. The runner from third scores. The runner from second goes to third. Then there's either a pass ball or a wild pitch. It wasn't clear which, and the runner was out at home. So just a whole lot of pass balls and or wild pitches and runners scoring or runners being out at home. And I would feel a little bit cheated probably if I were the batter. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, let me let me drive these guys in. I mean, I guess you're happy to have cleared the bases and scored all those runs yes. or scored two of them at least. But it's like, I didn't do anything. I didn't even get a chance to do anything. And the other example was July 17th, 1977, Minnesota at Oakland, wild pitch, run scores from third, runner at second goes to third, runner at first goes to second. There's a, a pickoff and an error on the catcher, it looks like. The runner scores from third, and the runner at second goes to third. And then finally, there was a wild pitch, and a run scored from third. So all three runs scored, and again, the batter didn't do anything. It just would feel unfulfilling in a way, even though the best outcome you can hope for is that all those runs score. But again, the batter played no part. That would be really weird. I'd find that disorienting, you know, and it's not like you, uh, you know, uh, if you're a, a batter, you go up to the plate with the bases empty all the time. I mean, not all the time, but that's not an unusual event for you to go up there and be like, I don't have any of my friends with me. I'm all on my own. <laughs> but when you start with friends and then you lose them, I'd, I'd find that to be disorienting, although I would be yeah. really happy about the 
uh, scoring part. Right. Like that would be, and you and you have to keep getting out of the way. That's the other thing, right? <laughs> yeah, that too. You have yeah. to. You're thrown off your rhythm, I would imagine, because you're like, I got to get out of this guy's way, or I'm going to prevent him from scoring, and then I'll have no friends, but for a different reason. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Well, you could take some credit maybe for so intimidating the pitcher. Yeah. That he's just throwing wild pitches left and right, and maybe you were directing traffic. You right. know, like yeah, telling the base the, runners. You're doing <laughs> yeah. the arms. You're doing yeah. the get down move. You know. <laughs> I'm doing it, but you can't see, and neither right. can our listeners. But you can I'm imagine it because you've watched yes. baseball before. Yeah. So, yeah, you were kind of involved. You played some small part. You yeah. were there. There had to be a batter in order for those things right. to happen. So right. you were the batter. <laughs> right. It's not that you did nothing. It's that you just did nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Step last number five comes from Dennis. This doesn't seem like some kind of esoteric question, so I'm surprised I can't find an obvious answer online. Which manager has managed the most MLB players in their career? The most obvious answer would be Connie Mack, because he's managed almost 2,500 games, more than the second-place guy on the list. But he managed at a time when rosters and player pools were smaller, and he managed all but two of his 50 seasons with one franchise. Is his sheer volume of games enough to make up for those facts? So... Ryan was able to look this up, and this is players who played in a game since 1901. It does include playoffs. So if you were on a roster and did not get into a game, I think maybe that would not have counted because we don't have roster data going back far enough to do it, really. But here's the top 10 entering 2021. It was Leo DeRocher with 486 players managed, actually tie between DeRocher and Terry Francona. So Francona presumably has managed some new players this year and has gone above DeRocher. Then it was Buck Showalter at 506, and he has added uh, quite a few to that total, I would imagine. And then it was Dusty Baker at 519. He's probably added some too, but Buck maybe has leapfrogged him, I would think. I have not counted. Then Bobby Cox, 538. Lou Pinella, 556. Bucky Harris, 563. Bruce Bochy, 588. Joe Torre, 589. And then we get to the top two. Tony La Russa, number two, mm. he entered the season with 619 players managed. And by Ryan's count, he has had 13 new ones with the White Sox this year. So he's up to 632. But the number one is the obvious one, Connie Mack. Yeah. He managed 720 players. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> including our former guest, Bobby Shantz, ah, his uh, last, right. last living player to be managed by Connie Mack. But he had 720 of them. And I guess that record is safe. Maybe not quite as safe as his games managed record, but yeah. unless Larusa, like anyone else but Larusa, might have been let go already. Although maybe the White Sox are picking it up, and maybe they will win that division after all. We will see. But maybe. I don't know. It it depends. Like maybe as long as Jerry Reinsdorf owns that team, <laughs> Tony Russa can keep managing if he wants to. So if he's up to six thirty two now, I don't know how many more seasons he would need to manage to surpass seven twenty. Because if you're not changing teams, then most of your players from one year to the next are holdovers, and you're not adding to your count here. But right. there are just a lot of players used every season in this right. day and age. So. 
I guess fewer maybe now with uh, some restrictions on how many pitchers you can use and how long they have to be in the minors if you demote them. But yeah, unless Larusa has yet another act in his career where he catches on with another team, which seems unlikely. <laughs> I guess you can't count him out. But unless he does, then I think Connie Mack's record here is probably safe. But 720 seems to be the tally. Wow, that's a lot. That is a lot. All right. Step blast number six. Oh my gosh, Ben. <laughs> they're from... going. They're going. Yeah. They're going. Decent pace of stat blast here. Yeah. So Tom says, I often hear a game announcer use the phrase, the pitcher faced the minimum in an inning or in the game to that point. The phrase is used to signal that one or more batters have reached base, but were subsequently eliminated before the inning ended by a double play, a pickoff, a toot plan, or some other mechanism. I don't think a full game of the minimum faced, which isn't a perfect game or a no-hitter, has a name. A Mm. no-left-on-base shutout. So a couple of questions from Tom. How often does a no-left-on-base shutout occur? What is the most base runners in a game where the minimum has been faced? And what is the maximum total bases allowed in a no-left-on-base shutout? So Ryan notes that this one is stat-headable. Many of our stat blasts are not, but this one, you can use that coupon code WILD20. You could answer this one yourself, and you just have to set some statistical filters in just such a way to do this. So you have to have eight or more innings pitched. You have to have three batters faced times innings pitched. You can select that in StatHead, and you have to have greater or equal to one base runner allowed. So if you do that search, you get 91 results, but 14 didn't finish the game. And one, Ryan points out, looks like it's probably a data error. Dixie Davis on September 19th, 1920 has a a line that seems odd. Ryan says, not sure how you could pitch nine innings facing 27 but allow a run. That shouldn't be possible. There's no play-by-play for this game, so it's probably a mistake. Heads up, retro sheet. But that leaves 75 times. When it does seem to have happened, the most base runners allowed that can be verified with play-by-play is five, which has happened twice. So April 23rd, 1989, Bob Malacky, Baltimore had five base runners, three hits, two walks, and the outs were on four double plays and a caught stealing. Malacky was pitching for the Orioles, that is. And then the second is August 3rd, 1946, Orville Grove pitching for the White Sox. His five base runners were on three hits, one walk, and one error, and the outs were on five double plays. So Orville Grove was a double play machine that day. The most total bases allowed in one of these starts is four, which has happened three times. Mm. Once on May 29th, 2014, Josh Colmenter for the Diamondbacks. He allowed a double, two singles, and he got three double plays. The hitter who got the double was thrown out, trying to advance to third on the flyout. Then July 25th, 1982, John Candelaria for the Pirates. He gave up four singles, and he got three double plays and one caught stealing. And then June 29th, 1916, Epirixi for Philly. He gave up four singles and a walk, and he got three double plays and two caught stealings. And then one other interesting note, no one has done this while allowing a home run, obviously, Mm. or it wouldn't be a shutout, or a triple. Only three times has someone allowed a double and done this. 
Once was that Colmenter game. Once was August 23, 1942, Lon Warnicky for Chicago. And once was June 10, 1913, Walter Johnson for the Senators did it. So I think you could take some pride in facing the minimum, even yeah. if it's uh, if we don't have a, a name for that necessarily. Maybe we should have a name for the no left on base shutout. I guess that is uh, Tom's suggestion here. But that's something I would feel proud about that because uh, especially if you are erasing those runners yourself, like they're not just running into outs, you're getting right. double plays or maybe you're picking them off or you're playing some part in the caught stealing at least. It's not the conventional way to face the minimum, but hey, however you get those outs and, and erase those runners, it counts. Yeah, I feel like that would be a, a performance that would be written up favorably. People would say you had a good outing if that yeah. were the if that were the line that you put together and certainly mm-hmm. if that were the results of it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Stat blast number seven. Christian. I was bored at work today watching the Royals play the Tigers when effectively wild friend Vinny Pasquantino yeah. hit his <laughs> second career home run Vinny. off of Michael Pineda. The unusual part is that his first career home run was also off of Michael Pineda. Is this interesting or noteworthy? Is it made more rare by the fact that they were in separate games? Has anyone else done this or done better and gotten their first three or four or five career home runs off of one pitcher? (laughs) (laughs) I just love the idea that like so rapidly a guy could be like one of the hitters where when a pitcher comes up, he's like, screw that guy. (laughs) Yeah. Get this guy out of the league, please. Get him out of here. I hate that guy. So Ryan says there have been 133 times that a batter's first two home runs have come off the same pitcher. Of these 133, 76 players did that in the same game and 57 did it in separate games. Some interesting examples of separate games. The longest gap between two games was just shy of six years. Willis Hudley, a pitcher, hit his first career home run against Rube Wahlberg on August 3rd, 1927. He hit his second career home run also against Rube Wahlberg on July 12th, 1933. So he couldn't hit a home run against anyone else, but he had Rube Wahlberg's number. Rube Wahlberg. Now, Bronson Arroyo, the pitcher, again, hit his first two home runs in his career in his first two starts of the 2006 season, his seventh season in the league. That's weird. And both of those homers were against his starting pitcher opponent, Glendon Rush. Now, Adrian Hauser did almost the exact same thing, hitting his first two homers against the same pitcher, Daniel Castano, only a week apart in his fifth season. Hauser was also the most recent player to do this, coming into 2022. Pitcher Marty Patton hit his first and only two home runs in his career against Bill Parsons, approximately three months apart in 1972. Louis Tiant, yet another pitcher, who, by the way, should maybe be in the Hall of Fame. That is Ryan editorializing there. I'll allow it. Did this almost a year apart against Jim Bouton. Tony Walker was a center fielder who only played one season and only hit two homers, one in May 1986 and one in July 1986, both against Shane Raleigh, who was an all-star that year for the only time in his career. Hmm. Tony Walker is probably thinking, if I could have faced only Shane Raleigh, right. I might have lasted a little longer. And some other notable players who did this, Ernie Banks against Jerry Stanley, Norm Cash against Frank Larry, Carl Crawford against Sean Sedlicek. 
Joe Medwick against Freddie Fitzsimmons, who has come up on the podcast before. Mm-hmm. He was out to lunch when necks were handed out. That was something that was said <laughs> against him, I believe. Red Shane Deanst against Bill Voisel. Arky Vaughn against Bill Walker and Robin Yount did it also versus Ross Grimsley. Now, only one player ever hit his first three homers against the same pitcher. Oh, my gosh. Connor Jackson, who was a first baseman and left fielder for the Arizona Diamondbacks, hit his first two career homers on August 6, 2005, his sixth career game against Rocky starter Jeff Francis. Francis allowed four homers that game. Jackson played in 34 more games that season but did not hit a home run. The next season, 2006, Jackson hit his third homer of his career on April 12th, his seventh game of that season, again against Jeff Francis, still of the Colorado Rockies, although all of those homers were in Arizona, not Colorado. Jackson would eventually hit a fourth homer off of Jeff Francis on September 28th, 2007, this time in Denver, but he had hit 28 homers in between. So that's the most. The first three is the most that anyone has ever done it against the same pitcher. Wow. Mm-hmm. All right, that takes us to stat blast number eight, I believe, if I haven't lost count. So Jason noted earlier this year, last night, the first MLB player from Palau debuted for the Pirates in yeah. Bly Madris. For memory, the Pirates also debuted the first South African player, Gifton Gope, and the first Lithuanian player, Dovidas Nevarauskas. And a little research brought up The first U.S. Virgin Islander, if we're counting that as well, Joe Christopher, was a pirate. Hmm. I'm guessing this isn't the record, but that got me thinking, what is the record for the franchise that debuted the most countries into MLB? Cool. Yeah. So a few caveats from Ryan here. This includes all non-50 U.S. state locations, so it's other countries, but it also includes Puerto Rico, Guam, etc., just like historically in a baseball sense. Yeah. Those places have been listed separately, yeah. rightly or wrongly, and so if you look up these things on Baseball Reference, they're kind of a separate category, and sure. there are also some places here that may or may not be considered countries depending on who you ask, but we won't get into the politics of all that. If Baseball Reference listed them, Ryan included them. And he notes that one of those places is at sea. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) famously, Ed Perret, who played for Buffalo's Federal League team in 1914, was born in the Atlantic Ocean in 1888 or not in the Atlantic Ocean. I was going to say probably like <laughs> on a ship in the Atlantic yeah, like Ocean, he's, right? he's not an Atlantean or, or a merman or anything like oh, no, on the Atlantic Ocean. have to make a Ocean. new shirt. <laughs> yeah, on the Atlantic Ocean or, or yeah, more precisely, I suppose, on a ship that was on the Atlantic Ocean. And, and the other was uh, Frank Thompson, who played for Brooklyn's National Association team in 1875, is the only player born in Portugal. Mm. And uh, those are the two countries that had only one player and they were non-AL or NL. And this is also not counting the Negro Leagues yet. And Ryan notes this is also only counting a debut if it was for a currently operating MLB franchise, but including past incarnations of that franchise if it changed teams or city names, etc. And I will add another caveat, which is that Bly Madris is the first MLB player of Palauan descent, but he was born in Las Vegas, so he doesn't actually show up here because right. this is just birthplaces. We right. cannot uh, do descent, unfortunately, via baseball reference. But 
11 franchises have never debuted a player who was the first to be born in that country. So the Rays, the Mets, the Phillies somehow, even though the Phillies have been around forever, they've never had one. That's surprising to me. It is. Yeah. The Nationals, which includes the Expos, but even so, they haven't. The Brewers, the Royals, the Tigers, also surprising because they go way back. The Angels, the Mariners, the Diamondbacks, and the Rockies. And so if we're going to give you the most ever, it's the Cubs. The Cubs have had seven players who were the first to be born in a place, according to baseball reference. So Chick Pedroes, although apparently his name may actually have been Chick Pedro, was the first Cuban-born player and debuted in 1902. And then we have John Stedronsky, who was the first from the Czech Republic. Mm. He debuted in 1879. And John Hausman, first from the Netherlands, debuted in 1894. Skel Roach debuted in 1899. He was from Poland. Iram Bithorn, of course, from Puerto Rico. He is uh, 1942. He played for the Cubs. And then Robin Jennings, first Singapore-born player, he debuted in 1996. So those are the Cubs. And then you have the Yankees, Orioles, Giants, and A's with five apiece, the Braves with four, the Twins, Pirates, and Guardians and Dodgers with three apiece. And then you can go down the list. But I will link to that spreadsheet too if you want to see your team or you want to see who counts or doesn't count here according to baseball reference. And you can parse it whichever way you want. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it would be kind of cool to be the first from your birthplace or birth country. I think that would be a, a nice honor to have. I agree. All right. Stat blast number nine. Davin, Patreon supporter. In the Braves and Dodgers game on Sunday, this was a little while back, both of the closers ended up blowing the save. As you may know, both of those closers are the all-time saves leaders for the team they were pitching against. So this was Craig Kimbrell and Kenley Jansen. So Kimbrell now with the Dodgers, Jansen now with Atlanta. But Kimbrell is the all-time saves leader for the Braves, and Jansen is the all-time saves leader for the Dodgers, and they were each facing the respective team that they are the all-time saves leader of, but they are no longer with that team. So Davin wanted to know, is there any precedent for this? Has there ever been a situation where both of the all-time saves leaders pitched against the team they held the record with and subsequently blew the save. (laughs) So not only is there no precedent for that, by Ryan's count, this is the only time in history that two all-time saves leaders faced their former teams in the same game, period. Oh, wow. So, yeah. And as far as Ryan could tell, and I didn't see any examples of this, but it seems like no one noticed this or pointed this out. There were a lot of people noting that Kimbrell blew the save against the Braves and Jensen blew the save against the Dodgers. But it doesn't seem to have been noticed. The fact that they appeared at all in this game together was unprecedented. So that's kind of cool, kind of a fun fact that that was the first time that that had happened. And some other somewhat fun facts that Ryan noted, the player who has the most appearances against a former team as that team's all-time saves leader is Tug McGraw, 
He played for the Mets from 1965 to 1974 and pretty quickly became the saves leader for that franchise, which was young at the time. He then played for the Phillies for 10 years and was the Mets' all-time leader for the entirety of that time, and he faced the Mets 59 times. Second is John Franco, who set the Reds' all-time record in 1989, his last year with that team, and then he played for the Mets through 2004, the same year that Danny Graves passed him to take over the Reds' record. But in the meantime, he faced the Reds 45 times. In all, a franchise leader in saves has faced that team 788 times, but two players have never done it in the same game until now. Who knew? Wow, that's wild. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, step last number 10. Matt says, Luis Urias just struck out twice in the same inning. This was June 15th, the top of the fifth. And he did so for the second and third outs. How often has one player been responsible for two outs in the same inning? And how often have those both been strikeouts? And how often have those been for the last two outs of Mm. the inning? It seems like an incredible feat of failure. And I passed this on to Ryan, and I said it. it's not that unusual for one player to make two outs in the same inning, but it did seem somewhat unusual to me for those to be the last two outs yeah. of the inning as opposed to, say, the first and third. You'd think that just given the way that batting orders work that that would right. be more common. So Ryan says no one has ever come to the plate three times in the same inning and gotten <laughs> all three outs. <laughs> there have been players who have batted three times, but they haven't made all three outs. That hasn't happened yet. We can add that to the list of things that have not happened in a game that would be kind of cool to see. Not cool for that player. Great. There have been 4,400 42 times, I suppose, entering the season where a player has been up to bat two times and caused outs both of those times. 4,385 of those 4,442 times, the player got one out in each plate appearance. 57 of those times, the player was in some sense responsible for all three outs because one of the plate appearances was a double play. Mm. So that has happened almost 60 times. Of the 4,385 times that the player has made two outs and two plate appearances, 3,904 of them were the first and third outs, which is what I was suspecting. 247 times the player made the first and second outs, and 234 times the player made the second and third outs. So that is pretty uncommon. The most recent examples of a batter getting the second and third out in an inning before this year. I'll just give you the last one. It was Tyrone Taylor last June 28th in Mm. the eighth inning. He did that. And actually, Raphael Devers and Tommy Edmond did it last year, too. But that has happened 70 times this century. So to recap, it is not that rare to make two outs in an inning It is quite rare to be responsible for all three via a double play, and it is pretty rare to make consecutive multiple outs in an inning, either first and second or second and third. All right. And now I have gotten to the end of this. I see that (laughs) I'm not quite done. I'm almost done. I've got another one here. (laughs) uh, (laughs) I'll just clean it out. I might as well. I'm just going for the the completionist here. And uh, Reddit user... Twitter legend, except this was on Reddit, our Effectively Wild subreddit, our slash Effectively Wild, noted one of the recent podcasts discussing all-time strikeout leaders, and specifically Adam Dunn, reminded me of something from when I was in high school. We were Reds fans in Cincinnati, and we would discuss what we had dubbed the Adam Dunn cycle. 
The Adam Dunn cycle is pretty simple and is obviously composed of four distinct outcomes. Strikeout swinging, strikeout looking, walk, and home run. My specific question is, if there's a way to look this up and see if Adam Dunn is one of, if not the most prolific players to hit for this made-up Adam Dunn cycle, or if it should actually be named after someone else. Mm. Are there any other players who have a unique style that could lend their names to another version of the cycle? Now, effectively wild wiki power user Raymond Chen reminded me that back on episode 1722 through 1725, we discussed some alternate cycles so you could go back and check some of those out but the adam dunn cycle specifically now i guess this is not completely comprehensive because we probably don't have the distinction between looking and swinging strikeout for all of baseball history although it does go back a bit because uh, we know that babe ruth had eight of them on record at least so this is confirmed adam dunn cycles adam dunn had nine of them and that is not nearly the most, actually. Oh. We have pitch-by-pitch data at least completely going back to 1988. So I would guess that there is some bias toward recent years and, and also because uh, there have just been more strikeouts and sure. I guess more of all the true outcomes in general. But the Adam Dunn cycle really should be the Jim Tomey cycle. Oh, so Jim Tomey did this 26 times. Wow. He had a swing strikeout, a looking strikeout, a walk, and a dinger in the same game. 26 times. No one else has had even half that many confirmed wow. Adam Dunn cycles or <laughs> Jim Tomey cycles if we are renaming it here. So Curtis Granderson is second with 12. Mm. A-Rod had 11. Chris Davis, Mark McGuire, and Justin Upton have 10. And then Dunn is tied at nine with Bonds, Sammy Sosa, Frank Thomas. And then at eight, you have Carlos Beltran, Bobby Bonds, Jose Canseco, Carlos Delgado, Ryan Howard, Mike Trout, and Babe Ruth, who may have had more in actuality. But yeah, we got to rename this. I think it's not the Adam Dunn cycle. It's the Jim Tomey cycle. Wow. Well, you learn something new every time you do 10 step less. <laughs> 11, actually. 11. Oh, no. Wait. Oh, no. <laughs> Wait. Isn't it just 10? It was. I thought it was. I miscounted. Um, That was the 11th. So okay. That's, yeah. That Okay. That was one for, for every year that the podcast has been in, in operation, let's And say. one to grow on. Yeah. Uh, well, no, I guess if we count uh, every year that we have been podcasting, it's it's 11 years, I guess. We're, this is a, the 10th anniversary, but we've, we've, this podcast has existed in 11 distinct <sighs> I years. I am horribly confused. That now. was a stat last about how <laughs> just, if you count from 2012 to 2022. That's, right. It's, 11 it's like how you're going years. into the next year when you have your right. birthday. Right. Exactly. But I will give you one last to grow on because oh, okay. I've got another. It's from- Oh my gosh, Ben. You're out, you're out of control. <laughs> I know. It's from Hinks on the Discord group, the Effectively Wild Patreon Discord group. So we're pulling these from all different social media. He said, what's the most consecutive no-hit innings by a single pitcher against a single team? Oh. And Ryan reports that it is Neftali Feliz did not allow a hit in his first 19 and two-thirds innings against the Mariners. Wow. That's the record. Yeah. So he gave up no hits in one inning in 2009, no hits in five and two-thirds innings in 2010, no hits in nine and a third innings in 2011, and no hits in three and two-thirds innings in 2012. Then he finally allowed a hit in the fourth inning. He pitched against the Mariners that year. So he went 19 and two-thirds. 
without allowing his first hit to the Mariners. And uh, top of the leaderboard, it's uh, mostly relievers, but you got Dazzy Vance, second. He went 18 innings hitless against the Phillies. Billy mm. Wagner, 17 and two-thirds against the Pirates. Chris Bazio against the Red Sox, 16 and two-thirds innings. John Montefusco, 16 and two-thirds against the Braves. And then Francisco Cordova with 16 and a third against the Astros. Wow. Now I am finally finished. <laughs> My goodness. Yeah. So that's uh, a dozen stat blasts I guess I ended up giving you there. <laughs> I think we have exhausted our stat blast material and possibly all of our listeners. <laughs> well, look, I mean, as we uh, as we have highlighted several times on this podcast, both in terms of ourselves and the guests that we tend to have on, we are completists by nature. That's why we yep. are the way we are. It's unsurprising. <laughs> yeah. Blasted mm-hmm. some stats. We sure did. All right. And that's just the beginning of this episode because right. now <laughs> we will take a quick break and we'll be back with Rich Frickin' Hill. Rich yeah. Hill is on the podcast. How about that? How about that? I was young on this mountain, but now I am old. And I know, I know every holler, every cool swimming. Well, we are joined now by a podcast favorite, the man, the myth, the mountain, a pitcher for the Red Sox who was once described by our friend Annie McCullough on an episode of this podcast as the best pitcher I have ever seen, Rich Hill. Hello, Rich. Hey, hey guys. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Andy's seen and covered Clayton Kershaw, so for him to say you're the best he's ever seen, that's something. That's a nice compliment. Oh. Yeah, and he's a great guy, and uh, yeah, yeah, I really enjoy talking with him as well. Yeah, so we have enjoyed talking about you over the years, and now we're going to talk a little bit to you. We wanted to do a little bit of a a career retrospective here, although with a career like yours, we would be here for days if we wanted to cover everything. So I guess I'll just start with one, just going all the way back to the beginning, because I don't know when I first heard this, but I was fascinated to read that you were a natural right-hander and your brother John converted you into a lefty, forced you to be a lefty basically because he thought it would help your chances of being a big leaguer. And that seems to have paid off, although I guess we will never know the alternate history where that doesn't happen. Is there a scenario in your mind, do you ever think about this, where you're not known as maybe the more finesse-oriented lefty Rich Hill, but the power righty Rich Hill. <laughs> you know, I got an opportunity to play with uh, Pat Venditti. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, obviously ambidextrous and, you know, great person, great player. Uh, and I was always amazed by, you know, his ability to be able to face a righty, righty on righty, and then, you know, flip the glove over and face uh, the lefty, lefty on lefty. So I... Yeah, I never really I haven't I haven't put too much thought into it. Although every time you know, I watch watch guys pitching and the velocity now is just creeping up and creeping up and right. guys are throwing harder and harder. You know, I think if that's one thing that I would have loved to have had is is a you know, a big power fastball. But <laughs> that's you know, I have what I have and then and, and I'm thankful for it. But yeah, that's yeah, I don't I don't put too much thought into it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, no need to when you have a really long and successful career. I guess uh, you don't have to worry about what would have happened. But if you 
try to throw righty now? Is it like as awkward as a natural lefty trying to throw righty or does it still look semi-natural? Oh, no, it's awkward. Yeah, awkward, <laughs> terrible, never worked on it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, nothing, you know, it's funny. Everything else that I do, if I kick a soccer ball or I shouldn't say hit a golf, I hit a golf ball left-handed or swing left-handed, but I write right-handed, mm-hmm. you know, and kick, like I said, kick a football or a soccer ball, I kick it with my right foot. So Yeah, which, which yeah, hand are you cool. holding the yeah. phone with right now? <laughs> my right. Okay. My right. That's pretty funny. Yeah, so even... You know, eating, eating, I eat with my right, uh, you know, a fork in my right hand and right, right handed. So, yeah. Ben mentioned the longevity that you have had over the course of your career, which I imagine you might be sick of hearing about at this point. But I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how player development has shifted in your time in affiliated baseball, because you came in sort of at the the very beginning of the sabermetric revolution and player development has gone through you know, so many iterations since then. How have you seen that trend sort of change in your time in affiliated ball? Yeah, I think I think when we look at, if we talk specifically about the major leagues, you know, guys are coming up at a younger, it seems to me anyway, at a, I know obviously getting older and everybody's still, you know, getting younger, but they're coming up at a younger age and having the opportunity in a lot of cases to develop at the major league level, which, you know, you you would very rarely see from what I saw coming up when I was younger, uh, you know, guys would have to prove, you know, and, I, and they still do. They have to prove that they're, you know, done with that level of double A ball or even triple A, whatever it is. Like you've accomplished everything that you, you know, hit all the markers fully qualified to, to move on to the next level. And that was basically how guys were judged or moved up to the next level uh, based on performance and showing the capability of, being able to, you know, from the pitcher's standpoint, command a fastball or, you know, be able to throw a secondary pitch consistently for strikes. And I think now a little bit, you know, guys are getting getting pushed through the uh, through the system sometimes, you know, for, for many different reasons. Sure. It could be for value, trade value, or just to get guys up there to get the sheer experience of being in the big leagues because they're part of a longer-term plan for the, for the club. And they, you know, depending upon where the club is on that year, they, they want them to gain that experience for, you know, a year down the road or two years down the road when their their club is ready to really fight for a championship. But I think overall, the analytics side of the game obviously has changed uh, a lot the way we look at, you know, hitters and pitchers as well. If we talk about, you know, exit velocity or just spin rate in general for pitchers or you know, vertical and horizontal movement on the ball and trying to see how the ability is there. But now in order to get the finish, that's that's really the big, you know, test. And that's why we can't just have the game be, you know, completely analytically based because we have to have coaches who can polish that player and, and, sure. and have that player have the finish that is required at the major league level. So whether that be pitching coach, mental skills, obviously a combination of both, and then the experience from the coaching staff and or uh, veteran players to help that player along in their journey to find consistency in their routine and find consistency, you know, to, to be successful at the major league level. And that's, you know, that's something that just doesn't happen overnight and, and takes, it takes, 
you know, in some cases, many years to, to refine. And, and sometimes you, you know, you're, you're continuously refining it. And, and I think that's what, you know, in my case pushes, pushes me to stay relevant at the major league level and have success. I think that all of our listeners will be familiar with your story and how changing the utilization of your curveball really unlocked things once you came back from indie ball. I wonder if you, as you look back on your career and some of the people and pitchers who you came up with, if there are guys who you can think of who might have had very different careers if we had known now what, you know, if we had known then what we know now about pitching development and analytics? Are there guys who you think might have had a successful career either because they had traits that we didn't know to value then or didn't know how to unlock? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that, you know, with the ability to measure, you know, like I said, movement on a pitch, instead of just looking at straight velocity, uh, you can find the value of what that pitcher can potentially do at the major league level because of the the ability to measure what they you know what we see on a radar gun might it doesn't tell the tell even you know the full story as we know now but that's what was basically the main tool back in you know pre-2012 or 2015 but yeah i think i think that you know there there are a lot of guys that you know for whatever reason got overlooked and didn't get the opportunity to get to the big leagues and, and, you know, had very successful careers in the minor leagues, but for whatever reason, just never got the opportunity to prove it at the major league level. And then of course, you know, if, if some did their, their leash to have failure was, was very short. So, and again, you know, at the end of the day, it comes down to the player because you have to continue to keep fighting and keep trying to find, you know, a way to, make it work and be successful at the level that you're at, first of all, but then with that goal in mind of playing in the big leagues and playing at the highest level, you know, the, the failures and the ups and downs or the, you know, DFAs or whatever it is just really reinforces how badly you want to continue to pursue the goal of pitching at the major league level and being successful. But, you know, definitely guys were overlooked and fortunate with, you know, obviously the measurement tools that are in the game right now, but I don't think, you know, the other side of it too is being able to measure everything doesn't necessarily mean it has to be measured. Sure. And I, and I think, you know, we got to look at the game where, you know, and, and, and it's starting to come back towards the middle. I think next year we're going to see a, you know, a little bit of a design change on the, on the shifting that's been happening, I think, to open up the offense a little bit more in the game. And then also being able to strategically come back to the hit and run, you know, sacrifice bunts, you know, sack flies, playing the game, almost the station to station game, as opposed to, you know, home run derby. That, that to me is a much more exciting game when guys are hitting, you know, doubles and triples as opposed to, you know, the occasional home run mixed in is great. But I think what we've seen over the last, five years with with the baseballs being much more jumpy than they've than they've been it's not as appealing i think as major league baseball thought it would be Mm -hmm. so with with all that i think we're going to end up back somewhere in the middle and i can see it i can see it slowly going that way but yeah back to the (laughs) back to the original question definitely guys were, were overlooked and hopefully now you know with with the tools that we can measure 
you know, if a guy has a below average fastball, so to speak, on the radar gun, but has, you know, great vertical movement and is proving to have a lot of swing and miss in there, we now know why, as opposed to before. Right. It would always be, well, I don't think it's going to work at the next level. Well, I don't think it's going to be, you know, quite enough, mm-hmm. you know, velocity on the fastball or, you know, that curveball. I don't know if the curve. We never talked about mirroring pitches before, but yeah. we would talk about maybe not using the term mirroring, but, you know, having them come out of the same slot and having, having your pitches come out of the same, Greg Maddox would describe it as like squares behind. If the, if the hitter is looking at the pitcher, you have, you know, a whole sequence of squares behind you and right. you can have your hand coming out of the same square with every pitch. The same thing as mirroring, but it was just kind of coined differently. Cool. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but the measurement tools are great. Uh, I think we need to look at it for what it is. But then also the other side of it, you know, is is the performance-based mentality that comes into playing, which you can't necessarily measure, which is something I know, or I, at least I've heard, teams are trying to figure out and, <laughs> and put a number on the intent, the intent behind the player, because you can't measure intent. You don't know what a person's intent is or or – you know, what their level of, of want when they're in certain situations or, you know, during the game or, or the course of the season. So that, that, that's, I think that's the next big step. If, you know, clubs can, can measure that, I think it's going to really change, change the way we look at players. So we've been talking about this total revolution that has happened in pitch design and just the amount of information that is available about pitching and just the resulting increase in stuff. And I think maybe the average velocity is up about three miles per hour since you first entered the league. So how is it possible that all of that has gone on? Everything has changed. The stuff has really ramped up. And yet... You are the constant. You were there in 2005. You're here in 2022, and you're still pitching effectively. I know you've undergone various evolutions and adjustments over the years, going from the bullpen to the rotation and back and changing your arm angle and changing your pitch mix and all of that. How do you keep up with everything? Well, I think the other thing is just like, you know, pitching in real estate, it's all about location, right? So Uh it's not so much about stuff. I think stuff, yes, you do need a certain level of stuff. Although it will diminish as you continue to get older. However, being able to understand the pitching aspect of pitching is not, you know, about throwing. And that's one thing that I've been able to develop as I've gotten older is the understanding of pitching as a whole, being able to read swing, being able to see, you know, what a hitter is doing before they get into the box or, you know, the behaviors of kind of controlling the ebb and flow of the game. So there's all these other things that are going on even before you throw a pitch. But then when you're executing a pitch, it is still about location. So all velocity does is help you make more mistakes and get away with them. And that's, that's you know, it's obviously an unbelievable tool to have. But with that tool, how can you take your your velocity and learn how to pitch with that because now you know as we've seen over the last decade and a half where you have guys like Scherzer, Kershaw, Verlander these guys have and do have elite stuff but they also really understand pitching which is you know something that I think for me that's what's kept me around and I think also the willingness to 
just be creative and and be okay with failing and understanding that you know the number one thing is when you get out there it's about your effort it's not about anything else how you feel that day or what you've done or you know how how you prepared but uh going out there and and you know stepping on the gas so to speak and and not letting off you know not letting off until until your final pitch is thrown mm-hmm. so it's really you know the mentality side of pitching is so great and i think it, the mentality side of any sport is you know it, it's very difficult to measure again right because as i said before it's like we're trying to measure intent and how do you measure somebody's intent and i think that's one thing that you know has kept me around and and you know just the passion and the intensity i talk about it all the time but making that decision and that choice to you know flip a switch Mm-hmm. as opposed to focusing in on the results and, and just focusing on the moment and the, the pitch at hand has done wonders for, for my career. Yeah, I was going back and looking at some early scouting reports on you from the Baseball yep. America Handbook 2004. You were rated the 27th <laughs> best prospect in the Chicago Cubs system. I think you surpassed yeah. expectations, yeah. but it says, yeah. while he has no trouble missing bats, he has problems missing the strike zone. He has given up yeah. nearly as many walks as hits since turning pro, and his control was off so much last year that he had to be demoted from low class A at age 23. He's going to have to throw yeah. a lot more strikes to have a chance at being even a big league reliever. The Cubs think his control is more mental than physical. Yeah. Hill's pitches move so much that he gets himself in trouble by trying to paint the corners rather than challenging hitters. So is that what you were saying there, that you had to learn how to handle your stuff, or was it more of an approach issue? Is it true that it was more mental than physical? I mean, I definitely think that that would be a correct statement. I would not <laughs> shy away from that because I think – you know, part of it is the understanding of, you know, do I belong? What, you know, how, what am I? I didn't even realize, you know, or have any understanding of what kind of pitcher I was or, you know, anything about attacking hitters or having a game plan. It was just kind of, you know, floating, not floating, but like trying to figure it out as, as, you know, in a, in a young career and being younger, so to speak, but really not obviously younger when you get called up to the big leagues at 25, I would say, right. you know, things. <laughs> kind of rapidly moved quickly after after that 2004 season but I did a lot of homework and a lot of mental conditioning that 2005 or 2004 offseason and came into camp you know throwing the ball well and and felt great and just tried to carry it over into that 2005 season but you know is this such a young young mindset as opposed to you know the mindset of somebody who's had the experience and understands how to orchestrate a game, which I saw from other players that I was fortunate enough to play with, mm-hmm. you know, in, in, in a Maddox or in London rush, Kerry Wood, uh, Ryan Dempster, you know, all these guys that, you know, the, the passion and the intensity of a Carlos Zambrano. So all those examples that I get to see coming up as a Chicago cub definitely helped me along the way at some point, but, Again, at the end of the day, it's up to up to you as the pitcher, as the individual, as the athlete to do the work. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So I think you know the one thing about with the command and and being able to you know kind of rein that in was had a lot to do with strength. So that's a whole other aspect of this uh, topic, I guess, for myself would be mm-hmm. you know understanding how to uh, put my body together, have the 
have a really sound shoulder program. And all that led into, you know, confidence and conviction on being able to command the baseball. And that was something that only going through those, you know, ups and downs of having command issues, the strength part of it really got me back into the zone. And I was able to, you know, command my pitches a lot better because of that. Mm -hmm. So one of the sort of famous stopovers for you in your career was your time with the Long Island Ducks. I know that as indie ball teams go, they tended to attract more established big leaguers like yourself who had had some big league run. But I'm curious what you think of indie ball as a development environment, especially now that Major League Baseball is using indie leagues as partner leagues to try to offload some of their development work with the contraction of the minors. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that, you know, one thing that's disappointing is that retracting these teams, you know, ultimately is cutting down the opportunities for kids to uh, get the opportunity to play in the big leagues and also uh, professional baseball. So I don't like the fact that, you know, minor league teams were cut because really you're trying to promote the game. And by cutting minor league teams, you're really doing the opposite. I understand that these are other, you know, organizational or not organizational, but clubs that are picked up by major league baseball and some kind of, you know, fantasy league, you know, in my opinion, I just think that, you're, you're missing, you're missing the opportunity to grow the game. And, you know, the game wants to be grown in the inner cities and you're going to, you know, tell kids that, Hey, you have an opportunity to play major league baseball, but yet we're going to cut the draft and we're going to cut minor league teams. Uh, it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I really think that, and, and again, the other side of it too, is that, you know, when we look at minor league teams and you look at the draft and you look at college, it just continues to get smaller and smaller up to the peak of, even making it to one day in the big leagues, but the the people or the 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 guys that love the game and 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 are playing the game have an opportunity to go to major league camp, learn from uh, hall of famers, learn from all stars, learn from great coaches, and now those opportunities are going to be missed. And when they're not getting those opportunities and and you're not being able to absorb the knowledge, you can't bring that back to your hometown. Uh, you can't teach the kids, you know, the right way to play the game, or at least you're missing the mark, I believe, on the, on the opportunity to be able to have that development from, you know, a guy that might have been drafted in the 25th round, loves the game. Yeah, they have an opportunity to make it to the big leagues, but if they don't, the, the amount of knowledge that they've gained through spring trainings and, you know, having really, really elite coaching at the, the professional level, again, is going to be missed. And I think that's, you know, one thing that doesn't sit sit well with me because we're here trying to we want to grow the game of baseball we want to make it more accessible for everybody and the final point I'll make is that you know when you have you know guys that again like get drafted later or or even get drafted early but you know for whatever reason it doesn't pan out they end up becoming great coaches mm-hmm. they end up becoming you know great front office people yeah and I mean, to me, that, that, you know, is going backwards. But for the opportunity to guys, to again, to have independent ball and to be able to continue on to see that dream fulfilled or the opportunity that you want to make of playing an independent ball, is it's great that it's there. And, um, you know, it really is a lot of fun if, you know, people can get out to a game if there's, a, if there's an independent you know, club and area, well, you know, especially with, 
I enjoyed my time with the Long Island Ducks and, you know, guys are really, you know, I'm not saying guys at the major league level, of course, everybody's passionate about playing the game, but, you know, basically playing the game for free uh, in independent ball and, and, you know, it comes out and then guys, you know, you can see it, you can see it in their, in their, the way that they play and, and have fun playing the game. One, you know, one team that I get a kick out of is the Savannah Bananas. That's, yeah. I think we all do. Everybody at the major league level is like, wow, that, you know, <laughs> looks like that would be, be fun to, fun to play with those guys. Yeah. Yeah. So that 2015 season when you were with the Ducks and you were also in AAA in Syracuse and then Pawtucket and then you came up at the end of the season in Boston and you just shocked everyone. And that's really when you came up on this podcast very frequently because we had a listener email us just after your first couple incredible starts for the Red Sox just saying like, hey, Rich Hill's about to be a free agent. What kind of contract would you give Rich Hill right now just based on how incredibly good he has been in this, you know, two three four starts it was and I wonder whether you were thinking the same thing whether you were surprising yourself I mean you had been bouncing back and forth between the big leagues and the minors you'd been mostly in the bullpen and then here you come out and you go from indie ball to being just one of the best pitchers in baseball at the end of that season and really just transformed your career and your life I'd imagine because I don't think we have the the data to calculate this for all time but if we could figure out just like the highest fraction of career earnings made after age 35, <laughs> you would probably be up there. So yeah, I wonder yeah. just like how that has changed your life to have that big breakthrough come fairly late in what was already a long career at that point. Well, I think, uh, you know, for, for anyone who's, who's listening or out there and is playing, it's just don't give up on, you know, your, yourself. First yeah. of all, uh, if you believe that, you know, there, there is an opportunity there and, uh, we can always say like, well, it's easy for you to say, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, whatever, but you know, going through it and, and working through it and understanding what survival is and how badly you want to continue to, you know, break those walls down that are going to continuously be put up is up to you as an individual, you know, don't point fingers and don't say, you know, I'm not where I should be because of this person or that person. It's it's really looking at yourself in the mirror and understanding how can I become the best player that I can be. And, you know, a lot of it for me, and I'll go back to it, is the mentality side of the game and understanding that, you know, going to independent ball and then being able to see that, you know, hey, I got nothing to lose. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go out and make the most of it. And, and I'm not saying that I didn't do that when I was younger or, you know, but I didn't have the understanding. I didn't have the understanding of, of, uh, you know, what that really took without the experience. It's just like telling somebody or giving somebody advice that isn't seeking advice. Their ears aren't open and they're, you know, you're telling them and giving, trying to give them advice. They're not, you know, receiving it because they're, they're, they're not asking and not seeking it. Mm-hmm. So a lot of this stuff is just being able to understand the process of being in the moment and understanding truly what it means to be in the moment. And you don't start looking at results or outcomes or, you know, looking back on outings. You're just looking in the moment, not even, not even forward. You're not looking, you know, to the next day. You're just looking at what you're doing in that period of time. And then I know a lot of people talk about it, but it is very true. It's just the concept of time and understanding that we have very little of it and mm-hmm. want to make the most of it while we're doing it. So, you know, what do we have to lose when you actually think about that, Mm -hmm. especially playing the game of baseball? It's just, that's, that's what makes it fun. 
And that's what I think was able to really, you know, unlock a lot of this ability that has always been in there. Uh, however, it's just, you know, the act of attrition and, and being able to be creative by going into the bullpen and understanding that when I did drop down, I still had something to give and I knew that it was good and wanted to make the most of it. And from there, you know, continue to find opportunities and mm-hmm. made phone calls, talked to, you know, in that 2015 summer, I, I just called everybody in my, in my, in my phone that I've had, you know, relationship or played with, uh, in the game that had any kind of connections or contacts to front offices. And that advice came from Ryan Dempster, who, you know, he goes, I know this is going to sound crazy, but you're at an age now that people are going to be questioning whether you really want to continue to play. I thought it was crazy because I was like, (laughs) of course I want to play. I just don't understand why nobody else, you know, understands that I want to continue (laughs) to keep playing. So that was, that was a really, really great piece of advice, you know, just to say, Hey, make as many phone calls as you can. So I started calling, you know, everybody, Michael Barrett, who obviously caught me in Chicago, Mark Pryor, who was with San Diego at the time, uh, London Rush, a lot of the guys that I played with in Chicago because they were, you know, guys that had finished their playing career and are now still in baseball and, you know, obviously are influential figures for for clubs. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think that's, you know, the 2015 kind of carryover of, being able to understand how the ball was coming out of my hand and being able to backspin the ball the way that I wanted to and end up having that, you know, fearless mentality that it took to to be successful at, at the major league level. Yeah. Well, I did want to ask one question about your mentality because we are talking to you on a day before you are scheduled to start. And from what I understand, if we were talking to you on that day, you would be a very different person and you probably wouldn't want to talk to us on that day because uh, you're known as a a laid back, easygoing guy most of the time, but not when you're in the game. You're an extremely intense competitor. And so you talked about teams trying to measure personality and all of that. I mean, you would get a very different reading on non-start days for you than start days. So I wonder like how that sets in. I mean, will you wake up the next day and you'll just feel that coming on? Is it like a Hulk-like transformation when you get out there or is it gradual? No, I think, you know, and this is the other part of, you know, the work that goes into being able to, in any sport or business or anything that you're doing that you're preparing to, you know, let's say go give a speech or, or whatever it might be, the ability to take it from, you know, the preparation from, uh, let's say it just starts, you know, you mentioned like in the morning and then it carries on through the day. And then you're trying to get to the start. Let's just use seven o'clock as a start time Mm -hmm. as opposed to making, you know, but that is in the beginning, how it starts out for me anyway, as a beginner's kind of mindset. And then the closer you get, uh, throughout or the more experience you gain, the smaller that window becomes to be able to have that light switch mentality. So kind of like being in the mindset of being able to, you know, be ready to, to turn it on or, or, you know, be pleasant and cordial (laughs) (laughs) at the same time. But you have that mentality to be able to like, Hey, I have it. If I need it right now, I can, I don't need to go through certain protein shake or something to eat or, you know, did I get enough sleep? Did I stretch? Did I do all this? That's, there's a lot of that, that yes, I'm not saying it's, it's not necessary. It's not, you know, treating your body 
the way they should, preparing and all that stuff feeds into it. Simply when it comes down to the bare bones of it, it's that you should be able to have that mindset. If somebody calls you, you know, in the middle of December and says, Hey, you got to pitch a game tomorrow. Mentally, you can go to that spot and say, okay, I'll see you tomorrow. I'll be ready. Thanks. Mm -hmm. No, there's not, you know, well, I don't have this. I don't have that. I can't get a massage. I can't, you know, and, 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 and going to independent ball, that, that, that's one thing that it taught me is that you need to be able to be ready with your glove and your cleats and that's it. So, you know, any of the modalities or, you know, equipment that we, it's just trying not to become someone who relies on a lot of these things that could become pacifiers as opposed to understanding the intensity and the aggressiveness is what you need to go out there to perform along with the mindset of being in the moment and you know because everybody has the ability and the ability is there for everyone it's what's going to be the separator mm-hmm. and you know honestly i feel like that's that's one thing so for me no i don't i don't wake up and <laughs> you know rip open the curtains and start yelling <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's so much it's a, it's a very uh very shortened uh window on the day uh-huh. now when i when i start so it doesn't uh it's not really this big anticipation or build up and plus the other thing is thinking about something that hasn't happened yet is really just wasting energy. So as opposed to, you know, being able to understand that, you know, whatever you're feeling before a game, whatever anxieties you're feeling or whatever, you know, if you don't feel good, you feel good or you feel too good. <laughs> it's all, it, it, a lot of that stuff is, is it all melts away when you summons up that aggressive mentality. And, you know, obviously, not to, there is, uh, I'm not going to disregard the work because that is very, very important. And that is a huge part of the preparation to get ready to go out there and perform, you know, every five days or every day or whatever your position might be, but at the bare bones of everything. And when you strip everything down, it is, you know, the mentality and the effort. Well, last question for you. You know, you've had various injuries over the years, as has any pitcher who's been around long enough. But it seems like your nemesis, at least for a while there, was the blister. And I almost hesitate to bring it up. I don't want to jinx anything, but it seems like (laughs) you have hopefully conquered that, that that is behind you. And I know you've been able to help out some other pitchers like Walker Bueller when they have developed that issue. And I know you tried everything up to and including the urination method. (laughs) So tell me and anyone else who's out there who has had blister issues, what finally fixed them for you? What is the Rich Hill remedy for blisters? Well, I think one of the things is being able to monitor your throwing especially in humid conditions, you know, if it's a, if it's a day that you're starting, you know, what I mean by that is that if you feel something coming on, you know, it's better to jump out of it and catch it before it actually gets worse because, you know, you can cool down the the layers of the skin and be able to obviously promote the healing earlier as opposed to trying to pitch through it and then having it break open. And then, you know, now you're in a real bad situation, tough situation, but, you know, overall we have one of the, the modalities that helped out a lot for me is, is using uh, a laser laser treatment. Mm-hmm. And I think all 30 clubs have it. And a lot of, I'm assuming, but I'm sure a lot of colleges have this, you know, laser therapy that actually promotes healing after, you know, wound is kind of incurred, right? Mm-hmm. So if you cut yourself or you slide into, you know, a base and you get a huge raspberry or on your knee or whatever on your hip, you can kind of promote the healing and it 
just promotes more blood flow to the area. So that that's that's really what helped me out a lot. And then also, like I said before, is just the consistency of playing catch and the consistency of kind of keeping it callous over over the course of a season has has really uh, been beneficial for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, lasers sound slightly more scientific than the urination method. I don't want to discount uh, yeah, the full well, remedies, but <laughs> <laughs> um, no, yeah, or, or uh, pickle juice, something just to keep it mm-hmm. kind of dry, but really to promote healing. And it, and it's, it is tough during the season because it's like, hey, I don't have you know three weeks to be able to let this thing right. completely heal. I have to get back and I have to pitch. So mm-hmm. I think one other thing that is is beneficial is just you know, being able to put a sleeve or something over your finger and continue the throwing process so you don't have to shut down. Because if you shut down, now all of a sudden, every day that you miss, it's a day that you have to make up to get back and, and be on top of your game. So mm-hmm. those are, you know, a couple of things that definitely are extremely beneficial, whether you use some kind of like flex tape uh, around your finger just to cover it up and make sure that you're not, you know, beating it up anymore. But at the same time, you're keeping your arm going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we wish you well with that and with everything else. It has been such a a pleasure to follow and discuss your career. And I know that a lot of our listeners will be happy to hear you here. We figured out at some point that you had signed with the Red Sox as a free agent seven different times. I know you've had four separate stints with the team, but you've signed as a free agent with them seven times, which I believe is the most any player has ever signed as a free agent with one team. So it's been nice to monitor that on-again, off-again relationship too and and see it be on-again at this stage of your career. (laughs) Yeah, they've been incredible to myself, my wife, Caitlin, and and our Mm -hmm. son, Bryce, and and for uh, our late son, Brooks, where you know they were just tremendous as an organization and, and completely supportive and just... Yeah, overall, first-class organization through all the regimes that have been here. The one constant has been, you know, uh, the support of the players. And I, and I, you know, obviously have been around a lot of organizations, and I can, <laughs> I can uh, attest to it. So uh, yeah. I'm grateful that, you know, Boston has uh, one in our backyard, and and two have have been extremely generous and inviting for mm-hmm. you know, myself and and my family. So it's been great. Yeah, I mean, you've seen it all. You've been with, what, 11 teams at the big league level and more than that at the minor league level, I'm sure, and eight different uniform numbers. <laughs> it's just a yeah, a yeah, long a of, long and interesting career, and, and you have a lot of fans yeah. out there, I think, just maybe partially people who are maybe in their late 30s, early 40s and look to you as a, a hero as long as you're out there. <laughs> they don't feel old because they could still, in theory, be a big leaguer. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, never give up. You can't give up. You can't quit. Yeah. There's always there's always something else you can do. So keep pushing. I, I I you know, I've talked to a lot of guys that are have continued to stay in the game and ask me what I've done and, and you know, why and whatever, all the questions. And yep. you know, happy to answer them for everybody. But the one thing that I always say is that if the ability is still there, don't don't put the glove down. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. And you've become kind of a, a meme. We have a Facebook group for our podcast and when people put polls in there, every poll gets sabotaged because someone will write in Rich Hill as a response and then everyone <laughs> will vote for Rich Hill and it just derails the poll results. So you've <laughs> become a meme whether you knew it or not. And uh, I didn't. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, well. Williams, uh, your former teammate Williams Astadio is also sort of a podcast favorite. And so when you pitched oh, to him in Minnesota, he's that just that broke it. everyone's brain. <laughs> oh, I loved it. Well, yeah. That was some of the, you know some of the most fun I've had 
uh, on the mound was 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 pitching to us. Adio. He's uh, what a what a treat. He's, he's an awesome player and loves the game and and just you know being out there made it uh, felt like we were in the in the you know sandlot playing playing baseball again. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks so much for your time. This has been a great conversation, and we wish you well the rest of the season and the rest of your career, which we hope will last forever, frankly, and and that it'll be (laughs) you and Tom Brady out there pushing the limits. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, thank you guys for having me on. I really appreciate it, and and anytime, anytime. All right. Thank you, Rich. All right. All right. I'll talk to you. Bye. All right. Let's take one more break, and I'll be back to wrap things up with a pass blast and a few closing thoughts. All right, well, I hope you enjoyed that dozen stat blast salute, followed by an audience with the one and only Rich Hill. But before we end this anniversary week and I treat myself to some Friday night two-way Otani, we have to conclude with the past blast. This is episode 1880, and so we are journeying back to 1880, which is before even Rich Hill debuted. Sorry, Rich. As always, our past blast comes from Richard Hirschberger, historian, saber researcher, and author of Strike Four, The Evolution of Baseball. And he brings us back to June 12th, 1880. Cleveland at Worcester, another quaint former National League club. Worcester wins one to nothing in baseball's first perfect game. Back in episode 1878, we saw an ambiguous possible unassisted triple play. The 1880 accomplishment is gratifyingly unambiguous. Worcester pitcher Lee Richmond had thrown a no-hitter less than two weeks earlier. Here he tops that. As reported in the Worcester Daily Spy of June 14th, in Saturday's game, but 27 of the Clevelands went to bat, and but two fair balls were knocked out of the reach of the infielders, one of which fell into Corey's hands, and the other, a sharp ground hit to right field, was sent to first by Knight in time to cut the runner off. Richmond was most effectively supported, every position on the home nine being played to perfection. So that account didn't call it a perfect game, it sounds like. That wasn't a thing yet, but it was played to perfection. So I suppose the name suggested itself. The New York Clipper of June 19th writes of the end of the game, Hanlon came up looking determined, hitting the first ball pitch to Irwin, who threw him out beautifully at first, ending the game amidst loud cheering by the assemblage, as it had fallen to their lot to witness the greatest game of the season. Richmond was unable to get off the field for a few moments, owing to the crowd that surrounded him and showered congratulations on him. Richard writes, here in 1880, pitching had progressed to the point where it could dominate hitting. Sound familiar? Ten years earlier, a game like this would have been unimaginable. Pitchers by 1880 had curveballs in their arsenal, and while the delivery was not quite full overhand, neither was it full underhand anymore. Dominant pitching was not universally welcomed. How low could scoring go? This one nothing game was impressive, but also worrying. Most rule changes into the 1890s were aimed at increasing offense. On the other hand, a game like this was quick, coming in at under an hour and a half. And I will note that the next season, they moved back the minimum pitching distance, I believe from 45 feet to 50 feet. It was not a mound yet. It was just a pitcher's box, and they changed where the front line of it was. Richard says that was not in direct response to this perfect game or the one later in the season that John Montgomery Ward threw, but to the general decrease in offense. There also was a trend over the next decade of gradually reducing the number of balls for a walk. 
Of course, 1884 was the first season in which pitchers were allowed to throw overhand, though they had been testing that prior to that point. And 1893 was when we moved to the current pitching distance. That was a long time ago. But almost from the start, baseball has been a pitcher-batter battle. Initially, it was more of a batter-fielder battle, because the ball was supposed to be put in play. But it didn't take long for it to evolve to more of a confrontation between the moundsman and the batsman, or the batter. And that's where we are today. The battle keeps raging. One side takes the lead. Typically, the pitchers. Rules change. Hitters catch up. And then we repeat the whole cycle again. And, of course, we repeat the cycle of this podcast every week, and we are happy to do so. I noticed on Thursday that the San Francisco Giants had signed Trevor Rosenthal to a one-year $4.5 million contract. He's been absent from the majors for a while. He's had a whole lot of injuries, but he's back or about to be, it seems like. And I think that is fitting because Trevor Rosenthal is one of two major league players to debut in the big leagues on the same day that this podcast debuted, July 18th, 2012. Pedro Hernandez debuted that day for the White Sox. He has not lasted as long. He posted a career ERA over seven and just a little more than 60 innings pitch and has not been in the big league since 2014. But Trevor Rosenthal keeps on trucking and he's making a fresh start for himself, which is inspiring, I think. There is that Bill Walsh, Theo Epstein saying about how coaches and executives should change after 10 years with the same team. They should go somewhere else. Epstein cited that when he left the Cubs. The idea is that both the person and the organization benefit from a change after they've spent a decade together. Well, we are, I suppose, ignoring that advice, and we're not going to call it quits after 10 years. We're going to be back next week, and we will keep rolling. But we have had plenty of change. The show itself has changed. The co-hosts have changed. The formats have changed. And some of the listeners have changed, although some have been with us from the start. So I hope we are bringing you the benefit of experience and also managing to keep things fresh. And I can't thank all of you enough for listening to the show, supporting the show. I hope you enjoyed this week's episodes. You've all made this a very rewarding decade for us folks here at Effectively Wild. So I will say for myself and on behalf of Sam and Jeff and Meg and Dylan, thank you very, very much. And thanks to those of you especially who support us on Patreon and make it feasible for us to keep going. We would not have made it this far without you. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. I see a good number of you have signed up this week perhaps in honor of our anniversary, and I thank you for that. The following five listeners are among them. They have gone to patreon.com slash effectivelywild, signed up, pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free aside from our Stathead sponsorship, and get themselves access to some perks. Crust Young, Perry Vargas, Larry Holly, Liam, and my friend and ringer colleague, Zach Cram, who just got married, so congrats to Zach. Our Patreon supporters get access to the Effectively Wild Discord group. Now more than 700 members in there, chatting baseball all day. They also get access to monthly bonus episodes, one of which will likely be coming along next week, as well as discounts on t-shirts. Don't forget to go get our 10th anniversary shirt that became available this week, and playoff live streams later in the year. You can contact me and Meg via email at podcastofbangrafts.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod. And you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance and his appearance on the podcast this week. We hope you have a wonderful weekend and that you'll join us for the beginning of the next 10 years next week. The power in the naming Potential in the
听。